Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you do enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving up to as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous for $5, receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you would like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, find us at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you, you can also find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, the Observer's Notebook also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what we hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now episode 95. We're going to talk to someone from Celestron, Greg Bragg about the latest and greatest going on with that company. Hope you enjoy it. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this episode of the Observer's Notebook. We have a special guest today from Celestron, Greg Bragg. Welcome, welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you very much, Tim. Glad to be here, man. Yeah. Now, before we get into it, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Um, we have, what, three hours? Uh, we have as much time as you want. <laughs> I'm just joking. No, I, I've spent about, um, oh, it's close to 15, 16 years now on the manufacturer side uh, in the hobby. I've worked for Meat Instruments until they got in financial trouble and laid a whole bunch of people off back in 2010. Uh, I worked for Explore Scientific for seven years with Scott Robertson, a bunch of my good friends there. Uh, I spent a little time in the middle of that, just a little over a year at Pentex, selling sport optics uh, with oh, them yeah. and, and helping them get some eyepieces that they had discontinued a long time ago, brought back. Uh, and then I uh, got an offer from Celestron back in November, so I've been with them since November of last year. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I started selling telescopes in a camera store in the um, early 80s, 82, 83. And uh, it's funny how this has kind of come full circle because the guy that, that uh, 
kind of trained me, worked for Celestron at the time. His name is Joe Gordon. He's an icon in this industry, been, mm-hmm. a, been in it a long, long time. And uh, Joe showed me um, through a little Celestron C90 on the hood of a car in a, in a mall <laughs> parking lot and kind of got me hooked, you know. So I've been an amateur for a long time and then, you know, got lucky enough to get involved with um, the uh, manufacturing side because I've always been in sales, cameras, and telescopes okay. and stuff like that. All right. Now, you, where are you located? I live in Atlanta, uh, okay. based out of my home. Uh, I've worked out of my home since the middle 80s. Nice. Uh, so in this virus thing, you haven't had to compensate and start working from home. It's been status quo, just uh, normal stuff every day, yeah. Good. Staying uh, healthy? Uh, yeah, I do have my wife uh, at home. Uh, she's uh, she works for a church, and there she's their okay. office manager, so she's at home. But yeah, nothing really abnormal for me. Thank goodness. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. Now, do you consider yourself an amateur astronomer? Yeah, sure. I, I own uh, I don't know three telescopes of my own, four telescopes, counting my solar scope. So yeah, uh, I'm not as hardcore as uh, a lot of guys out there because. The vast majority of my time, I was involved in retail and, you know, sales for the manufacturers. So I, I don't get to spend as much time enjoying the hobby uh, because most of the time I'm working. And uh, as you'll learn through the course of this interview that I've attended over a hundred star parties. And during those events, I don't get to enjoy it as much as the guys that are there spending their time, but I do get to, uh, show them our equipment and at the same time, you know, let them look through our scopes at objects in the night sky. So um, I don't do it as regularly as I'd like to for fun. Most of the time it's for work. Okay. Now was there an event or something that sparked your interest in astronomy originally? Yeah. That uh, C90 on the hood of a, Ah. uh, (laughs) of a car in a parking lot at the mall looking at Saturn. I mean, I just was uh, like, okay, I got to learn how to do this and what this is all about. And, uh, when I, when I started selling them in retail, I, I was part of about a 60 or 70 store chain at the time, camera store chain. Mm-hmm. And in short order, you know, I was helping a lot of stores sell more telescopes because I really jumped in with both feet and learned about it. Uh, and you know, just figured how much fun it was and, enjoyed teaching people how to get involved in it. So yeah, you can sell anything you have a passion about. That's the thing. Oh, it's, for sure. Yeah. yeah I've been blessed that way. I've been involved in photography since I was in high school and got a job in a camera store and worked with them off and on for in the camera industry for 30 plus years. And now I'm doing this for the last 15 or 17. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great life. <laughs> That's good to hear. And yeah. you remember what your first telescope was? Uh, yeah, I bought a Nexstar 5, ah. uh, SE5. Um, I had, um, uh, you know, because I worked in a camera store, I had the pick of just about anything I wanted. Right. I wanted something portable and uh, ended up taking that to a star party for first light and um, realized it wasn't enough aperture pretty fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I ended up with a 8 and then ended up uh, a Nexstar 8 and then ended up with a LX210 inch, uh, which I own for, gosh, 15 years. Great. And uh, now I have an LX212 inch. I have a uh, 127 FCD100 uh, uh, Explore Scientific refractor, and I have a 120ED, and I have a 12-inch uh, uh, DOB. So, yeah, I'm 
I'm happy product wise. You, you're covered. <laughs> now, yes, what do you, now, what do you like to do? What, do you just do you just do visual? Do you astrophotography? You know, uh, it's really interesting because my, you know, my from my youth, I was involved in photography, and when I got involved in astronomy, I, I knew that I wanted to do some picture taking. But I saw all these guys at star parties just fretting over it and struggling with it and, you know, beating them up about it. And and I just got this nervousness that if I jumped in, I would probably be over the top. You know, I would probably be working so hard at it, I would forget about the joy of it. Right. So I kind of focused on being visual. And, and I love looking gal- at galaxies. I love looking at globular clusters. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm into... Um, lots of nebulas. I love Orion. I love the veil, I, you know, lots of stuff. I'm, I'm really get to enjoy when I'm at star parties showing people through our equipment mm-hmm. and, uh, they always ask for the, you know, the big, beautiful stuff. So I kind of enjoy looking at that myself anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is there someone that influenced you in astronomy to begin with? Um, you know, because I was in this camera store and I had absolutely no idea about it, I would have to say Joe Gordon uh, was, and and we became good friends. He, uh, I eventually became the uh, uh, vice president of purchasing for that company. And Joe called on me uh, years after I had, you know, looked through a telescope with him. And, uh, and he always was the guy I could reach out to and talk to and ask questions about and was always open to, you know, helping me learn more about what was going on. So, I would call him kind of one of the guys that helped me the most. There's also another guy who you may know, his name's Chuck Pisa and Chuck was, uh, uh, worked at a camera store when I was in the camera manufacturer side selling Olympus cameras. He worked at a camera store in Sarasota, Florida, and he was one of probably the most influential guys from a technical standpoint. All right. All right. Now you mentioned star parties and you said you've been to over a hundred. I have. Yeah. Now, most of those have been as a vendor or? Uh, before I became an independent rep for Mead, I had gone to maybe six, maybe seven. Okay. Mostly the Peach State Stargaze, Winter Star Party, and Chiefland Star Party because they're my, you know, locale to me. Right. And were easy to get to. And then when I went to work for Mead as an independent rep in 05, I told them one of the things I really thought would be beneficial to marketing their brand was doing star parties. Mm-hmm. So I did a whole bunch around the Southeast, up in Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, Florida, and Georgia. Uh, I don't, I think I, I don't think I did any in South Carolina, but uh, about eight or uh, about five or six a year for about three years, and then I went to work for Mead and convinced them that I wanted <laughs> to continue to do that and started doing the big ones, RTMC. Oh, and, great! Yeah, I've been, that was good. I've been Pardon me? RTMC, that's my area. Yeah, and yeah. That's, that's where I first met, first met Scott, too, Scott Roberts. So okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so um, you know, I, I averaged probably for 10 years, I averaged probably four or five, sometimes six, depending on the year, a year. And then when I went to work for Explore, uh, that was one of, you know, Scott's favorite things to do as well is to start right. parties so we started traveling around the country for four years, pulling his Airstream <laughs> in his truck. And we did 40 or 50,000 miles a year and did six or wow. seven, sometimes eight star parties a year. It was unbelievably awesome. That's crazy. Do you remember your first? Uh, yeah, it was the Peach State Stargaze in um, 
gosh, I can't remember the name of the city, south of Atlanta, um, Jackson, Georgia. Okay. And there was about probably 175 or 200 people there. Mm-hmm. And um, those uh, people were so amazing. I mean, I think that's another reason why I like the star parties and, and the events that I've been doing is because the people are just fantastic. You right. know, right. Uh, people are so willing to share, give you their experience, give you their knowledge, give you their uh, optics to play with. You know, uh, I remember the first cool thing at that star party was there was a homemade hydrogen alpha telescope that was basically a piece of uh, aluminum tubing that was about five feet long on these really rickety kind of like <laughs> sawhorse legs but it was the first time I'd ever seen the sun in H alpha. And uh, I, was, I, I was at that eyepiece for half a day. I mean, it was yep. unbelievable, but yeah, so that was my first star party. It was a, a great, a great thing to experience really was. And now do you have a most memorable star party or would it be the first, the first one? Well, I think there's been a couple of those memorable ones. Uh, I, I've been able to take both my boys with me to different events uh, I have a 27-year-old and a 25-year-old, and uh, from the time they were in their 20s, I got to take them to some events. I got to take them to Golden State Star Party yeah. in Northern California. I got to take them to uh, Nebraska Star Party. Uh, each of each one of them in the summer, I would try to find a place where they had time, and I, I could take them with me. And we did three, probably three star parties each with them, and those were really probably oh, that's fun. Yeah. My, my oldest, when he was 12, when I was still selling telescopes at, at the camera store, he and I went to a Pete State Stargaze in the northern part of Georgia. Uh, and and he, I mean, he still talks about it today. So those are very memorable to me, for sure. That's great. Now, with the current environment, what do you think the future of star parties will be? You know, that's a really good question. And, and I wish I had the answer. I, I, I have... Um, convinced Celestron to get back to doing this as well. When I came to work for them, I said, you know, you, you guys have done a few a year and mm-hmm. uh, you, you have been, you know, picking, you know, really nice size star parties. And I think we need to uh, do a little bit more variety. We need to go to some places where there's, you know, less than 200 people, some places where there's three or 400 people, some places where there's, you know, 500 or more and, and try to spread this out and do, you know, three or four or five, even a year if we can. And they've agreed to it. And I had a budget for this year, which started with winter star party yeah. uh, to attend five. And so winter star party is the only one I've been able to do. Can, and, can you roll that budget in the next year? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, 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 I haven't asked about that, but I'm still waiting to see what we're going to do about the, the upcoming ones that hopefully we'll finish this year out. Yeah. I have El Dorado star party and, um, the, um, what was the other one I was going to do this Okitex, the, which is one of my favorite star parties. Those are still on my list of things to do this year. The Peach state and El Dorado overlap each other. And if I have the budget, I'd rather go to El Dorado because I've been to the Peach state so many times. Now what, what is uh, that? Uh, El Dorado is, uh, uh, it's a spinoff from Texas star party. Okay. It's, it's in, um, uh, September and, uh, no, sorry, October, my fault, okay. October. Right. And, uh, it's a small group and mostly astrophotographers. But what I like about it is I've, I've gotten a lot of friends from that event. Cause I've been five or six times to that event mm-hmm. and I'm usually the only vendor there cause it's so small. Oh, okay. But uh, I can tell you when I worked for Explore Scientific, I, I could, I remember going to that field the first time working for Scott 
and seeing two of our refractors on the field of about 150 people. Over the next four or five years, that because I was there showing my stuff, probably 40 or 50 people ended up with Explore Scientific refractors because they got a chance to look through them while I was there. That's great. And uh, ended up doing, you know, imaging with them. And, and I've sold, you know, everything from 80 millimeters all the way up to, you know, eight inch, seven inch, six and a half inch refractors for those guys. So uh, that's what I think is important about attending those events from the manufacturer side is because you get to do grassroots, you know, marketing. And especially when you're the only vendor there, you get a lot of attention. So it's beneficial. Yeah. I remember the old days in the eighties and things at Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. I mean, everybody who was anybody with telescopes as a manufacturer was there. Absolutely. And it was, it was, it was crazy. And they bring their factory seconds out and Oh yeah. Oh yeah. If you were there early on Thursday morning or Friday morning, you got, you're picking a litter of a lot of good stuff, but yeah. My first, uh, my first, uh, real star party as a meat employee was Riverside telescope makers. And there was about 3000 people there. It was in 2007. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I will never forget that because there were circus tents and, you know, lots and lots of manufacturers there. It was, it was a really, really big deal. And I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah. I was there too. Yeah. I went, <laughs> I went for probably 27 straight years. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's and unbelievable. It's no longer there though. They've, oh, I know they shut it down know. last year, which is really, really sad. I know. I'm, I'm disappointed they had to go away as well. Yeah. Yeah. So working for Celestron, what is your position? Uh, my, my official title is specialty account sales manager. So okay. I kind of take care of the, um, uh, about 200 dealers around the U S and Canada. My, um, uh, uh, my responsibility is to mostly camera stores, telescope stores, hobby stores that are more interested in the serious amateur astronomer than the beginner. Okay. So, um, you know, I sell C gems and CGXs and CGL mounts and next SEs and, and, uh, AVXs and, you know, bigger, uh, Schmidt Cassegrains and stuff like that because of the more serious amateurs looking for something big aperture wise. I also sell Skywatcher at the same time. Okay. So that is, um, you know, that's a more serious refractor, uh, and Dob, uh, manufacturer. And, uh, and that is, um, primarily my focus OPT and Woodland Hills and, and, um, uh, uh astronomics and, you know, companies like that are, are my, primary dealers okay. as almost every rule, uh, in business about, you know, 20% of my dealers do about 80% of our business, uh, that I'm responsible for, but it's, uh, it's an awful lot of fun. It's, uh, it's, you know, allowed me to meet some incredibly great people in this hobby, some incredibly people that, uh, incredible people that are involved in retail reselling the product right. and have made some really, really great relationships over the years I've been doing this. So it's fun. Yeah. I've spent some time over at Woodland Hills and they're a great group of people over there. They sure are. Yeah. Yeah. My last podcast was with Daniel uh, Muncy, oh. Dr. D and okay. uh, we, I hope he posts that sometime next week. So it should be okay. pretty cool there. Oh, great. Great. So let's talk about some of the products. Yeah, I, I I don't know if you know about the new product that we uh, just announced back in January. It's not uh, you know a super serious high end telescope, but it's really revolutionary. Actually, it's called the the uh, StarSense Explorer, and we have two versions: an LT, which stands for light, basically, and a DX, which stands for deluxe. And we have four different models: two LTs and two DXs. 
And those models are really for the beginner, but it's one of the first and only beginner telescopes on the market that uses smartphone technology attached to the telescope that actually allows you, the user, to find objects with a really inexpensive but nice optics, you know, beginner-oriented telescope. Uh, it's pretty incredible. It uses StarSense technology that we use on that we make that we make an auto alignment uh, system for the next star and the evolution, and and it works on other uh, of our telescopes that that actually does plate solving of the night sky. So the software on your phone actually sets in a little cradle on the StarSense Explorer. It takes a picture of the night sky, figures out where the telescope is in reference to the um, eyepiece and the phone that's in the cradle, and then tells the user where the object object is. Most beginners get very frustrated when they get a, a little refractor or a little reflector because they can't find anything but the moon. They don't know how to find objects. And this actually has a night sky tour, so you can, once you do a quick little alignment of the phone and the telescope, it takes a picture of the sky through your phone, it does a plate solve and determines where everything in the sky is and then gives you a tour. And it even tells you if the, if you're in the city, these are most observable in the city. If you're in darker skies, it says, really? yeah, it, it even says this is going to be better in dark skies. So you just select an object, a little target pops up on the screen. It gives you an arrow, the direction you move the telescope, you move the telescope until you get a green target it starts at red and then as you get closer to it, it turns green. And then it actually, I mean, 100% amazing puts the object right in the green target. All you have to do is look in the eyepiece. The difference between the LT version and the, and the DX version is the, is the DX version has slow motion controls on the, on the um, mount itself. Okay. So if you're doing outreach and you're a serious amateur astronomer and you know all about the night sky, but you are doing outreach on a sidewalk event with your club or something, you could take this telescope out there and show people how simple it is. And in just a few minutes, have them finding objects on their own. And then if you've got a group of people, the slow motion controls actually let you stand beside the telescope and keep the, the object in the target so people can just flood through the eyepiece one after the other, and you don't even have to go back to the eyepiece because all you have to do is look at the phone and the target and make sure the object's in the eyepiece. It's unbelievable. Yeah, when you first mentioned this product to me, I obviously went online to look it up, and there's a real nice video showing yeah. how, how this operates. Now, does it work with all, all cell phones? It works with uh, everything on the market. We have Android, we have Windows-based, and we have uh, iOS for Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can download those for free. The app uh, by itself works on any phone, but it doesn't control a computer, the telescope until you actually uh, um, enter a uh, code into the phone to activate the software to actually do the pointing, Okay. So the, the software is available. It's, all, it's been available for a while, but now that we have the StarSense part of it, you activate the code on the phone and then it, it connects, uh, you know, it, it actually allows you to align the scope to the phone. There's no connection. I, I said connects. I mean, there's no actual connection. It sits in the cradle, which is attached to the telescope, which is um, aligned to, to, you know, coordinate the phone and the telescope together. 
And, uh, and, and that really only takes a couple of minutes, but then once you, once you get that, uh, aligned, it, it takes you right to the object. I did this with a, a group of guys when I first got my sample. And the most amazing thing to me is if you've used a, a computerized telescope, you know, if you move it, if you bump it, you have to do a new alignment. Okay. Right. Uh, with this telescope, we were looking at Orion and the moon in the South and Andromeda and the double cluster was in the, in the North and the Northeast, which was behind us when we were looking at Orion and the moon. And we turned to look at, you know, the double cluster and Andromeda and they were blocked by trees. So I said, guys, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I just picked up the telescope and walked to the other side of the yard we were in, Mm -hmm. set it down. It took five seconds. It did a plate solve. The arrows changed. It took me right to the double cluster. I didn't have to do an alignment. Really? It was like the coolest thing. So if you're doing sidewalk astronomy and you, and you've got, you know, this on trained on an object and then you want to look at something else and it happens to be beside a, behind a building or blocked by a tree, you can pick it up and move it. And it, gets back into its orientation really fast and lets you look at those objects you couldn't see before because they were obscure, you know, obstructed. So it's unbelievable. It's really, really cool. That's great. Now there's, so there's no polar aligning or anything like that. Nothing like that. You don't even have to be level. You don't have to, I mean, it's really amazing how it works. So the possibility of putting motor drives on it really doesn't exist. So either. You know, I don't think there's really a reason to do it on a telescope of that capacity. I mean, we we do have telescopes that have the ability to to add a motor to those Mm -hmm. that have slow motion controls. And you could do that with the DX version, I'm sure. Um, But only thing it would do then was just track, right? It wouldn't go find it or any of that stuff, but you would find it. And And then the motor would help you track it. So... Uh, I think the big thing that's going to come next, and you know, this is this is just me thinking out loud because I can't get them to talk to me about what the future looks like for it. <laughs> but because um, they know sales guys talk too much, really. <laughs> but uh, I think the next uh, the next advantage is for Dobbs that are not you know computer controlled, and we could put this on a six inch Dob, an eight inch Dob, all the way up to a sixteen inch Dob. And people could have some really, really nice optics and, and then be able to find objects pretty easy. You would just have to be able to, you know, move the scope around the track. And, uh, and that would be the only real negative of, of adding it to those big scopes. But um, I, I think there's a lot of possibilities. The uh, StarSense uh, software and the plate solving capacity is giving us, you know, advantages we haven't had in the past. And I think the the opportunities are pretty high for lots of different things, really. Yeah, I went on uh, Cloudy Nights website yep. and searched for Star Sense, and there's a huge thread. Yeah, on this, I'm, a lot of people are really excited about it. And I think there's even a guy on there that built a adapter for his Dob. Yeah, I, I've actually heard about several people doing yeah. that. Unfortunately, I haven't had anybody tell me from firsthand experience if they've been able to make it work. It doesn't seem like it's that hard. No but no one's actually confirmed that it does work. So uh, I can't wait to hear if somebody has made it work. No, it sounds like exciting technology for someone just getting into the hobby. Oh, for sure. It really does. They don't have to do what we did, star hop. Well, <laughs> actually learn the sky. Before oh, you start was, looking for stuff. Yeah. And, and that's actually kind of bad for me because, I mean, I know the sky pretty well now, mm-hmm. but when I first started, I got a computerized telescope. So I was way ah. behind the learning curve. Yeah on where things were and stuff like that. And I remember this guy with a big daub next to me when I had my little five uh, SE next to our SE five. 
He said, so let's see how good that computer is. I said, okay. So he said, pick an object. And I said, well, you pick an object because I got the computer. He didn't have any, you know, he had a star map and stuff. Of course, he was experienced and he knew where a lot of objects were. But he picked some NGC object and I'm like, (laughs) I don't even even know how to get that in my hand box. And he goes, got it before I even, (laughs) you know, so that's it. Know it or, you know, they, that's really cool. Now, now you mentioned that it, the, the your, your phone images the sky. So there's a, like a mirror in there. There's a mirror on the cradle that okay. holds the phone, and it just takes a picture of the star patterns. Uh, it actually does save those star patterns on your phone in the you know in the back end. You can't actually access them unless you tell the software to keep those for you. Uh, but they're just going to be you know constellation pictures basically. They're not. They're not long exposures. They're just picking up the key stars for uh, for the alignment and and finding of those uh, of objects. So now, is there a magnitude limit that we have to have really clear skies? Oh, or? Let me tell you, man. And the experiment I did with these ten guys uh, was in the front yard of a friend of mine's house with the front porch light on, a motion control light over his garage, and it came on every time we moved. And a street light just at the edge of his property, which was, you know, 70 feet across, maybe wasn't even a big yard. And uh, it had no problem whatsoever finding the objects. Even when I moved it, it took five seconds to do a new plate solve. Uh, a little instruction on the phone comes up and says, don't move the phone. We're, we're recalibrating the alignment. And then as soon as that was done, the arrows pointed right to the double cluster. I went right to the double cluster. It was right in the center of the IP. So That's just astonishing. Yeah. Now, what are the optics that the systems come with? So we have uh, two refractors, one for the LT and one for the DX. The uh, uh, LT comes with a 80 uh, millimeter refractor and the DX comes with a 102 refractor. Oh, my. And then we have a 114 reflector on the LT and a 130 reflector, both Newtonians, on the uh, DX. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of people that I see, you know, doing reviews and stuff are, appear to be amateur astronomers that are probably in clubs and have heard about them and want to do some outreach like we're talking about. And most of them have, have uh, bought the 130 because, you know, they want more aperture. They understand what that does for you. But I got a sample 102, and in that guy's dry, in that guy's front yard, we could see Andromeda. It wasn't beautifully detailed, but it was. You could obviously tell it was a big galaxy. Mm-hmm. The double cluster was great. The Orion's Nebula, even with like a 10 millimeter eyepiece, was really something else to see for a f- under 400 dollars telescope. Um, so it was pretty awesome. The moon was beautiful, regardless, and it's going to be good in just about any telescope you can take in your front yard and find the moon with, but it, it was, I mean, those objects aren't, I mean, they're big, but they, right. in, a, in the city, when your eyes aren't dilated, they were beautiful. Guys were going, I can see Andromeda in a $400 telescope. Really? <laughs> you know? So is that, is that the price point for these pretty much about the, 400? The, the LTs are around 180. Um, and the DXs are between 350 and 400, depending on where you buy it. So yeah. Okay. And all all you need is your cell phone to make it work. That's it. You got to have a cell phone. Yep. No additional stuff. I mean, they they don't require power. You don't have to have, you know, if you, if you're going to use your cell phone in cold weather, you probably want to get a little portable battery to carry with you to keep that going. Uh, But 
uh, generally speaking, just grab the scope and, and the tripod and, and your phone and go wherever you want to go, man. That sounds cool. Uh, good, it is good, cool. Good little first telescope or like you said, for star parties. Yeah. That, that you really wouldn't be afraid of kids touching either. So. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they can operate it. I mean, yeah. uh, my neighbor has a seven-year-old a little girl and she's uh, talked about, uh, she's seen me do the telescope in my driveway with the neighbors and she asked me if, if she could look through one one time. And I said, hey, I got a new one you can try. I actually let her do it. And she went right to the object and found it just like a, you know, a 20-year-old a or older would do. She was so good with it. It was crazy. Huh. She had no problem operating it at all. But you said like all iPhones, like the iPhone 11, because it's got multiple sure. cameras sure. on there. But it'll work yeah. with that? Yeah, it's not going to have any bearing on the 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 you know that that uh, part of the phone. Uh, you're going to center the phone over the mirror. There's a little procedure to do that. It takes okay. a minute or two, and you're going to center that up. And then when you when you you're going to want to be able to see the whole mirror with the camera. So that's what you're doing first. Okay. And then you're going to point the scope at an object to that to like you would do. Uh, you know, aligning your finder scope. It comes with a finder scope as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, like you would do an alignment for your finder scope, you point it at an object and then you zoom in on the phone. You get a crosshair so it can pinpoint the target you see in your eyepiece. So if you're looking at the top of a telephone pole or, you know, something like that down the road, uh, it's a, a light on a t- TV, you know, radio antenna or something like that. You could, you're easily able to align the scope in the phone just by matching oh, wow. up crosshairs. And then once you've done that, you just tell the, the you know, get dark and, and then tell the, the phone that you're ready to, you've done an alignment and you want to uh, see the objects and it brings up that list for you. You just go to town. You can also enter manual information. You can, you know, information that may not be in the database. There's 44,000 objects in the database. So generally you shouldn't have an, uh, an issue finding something to look at. Uh, but the tonight's best comes up and tells you around 30 or 40 objects, uh, you know, depending on whether you're in the city or in dark skies to, to get you through a really good evening of, uh, observing. Now, can you enter coordinates and yeah, find sure. It? Yep. You sure okay. can. Yeah. Wow. So let's say for example, you wanted to see the ISS, uh, there, uh, you know, those are published everywhere and you can just put in your longitude and latitude and it can give you the time it's going to rise in. Uh, set, you know, be illuminated by the sun and, and you can put those coordinates in and just point it at that direction. And when the, you know, when you see the satellite coming, you can get down, of course, you're going to have to move the the telescope to track it, but, uh, but you can see it. It'll go right through the middle of the eyepiece. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. I was up uh, uh, observing this past weekend and I wanted to look at Comet Atlas yep. and my computer controlled telescope skewed over to where Atlas was and was behind a tree. Now, if I could have just now, if I could have just picked up my telescope and moved yeah. it and just yeah. zoomed in, I mean, I wasn't about to pick it up because I had it all aligned and everything. But yeah, when you do alignment, you don't want to move it at all, right? Yeah, that's wild. That's yeah, really wild. Interesting. All right, it's, it's gonna, it's, it's really doing well too. We started shipping at the shipping it at the end of January, and it's been brisk. I mean, I'm, I'm really uh, satisfied with the marketing we did, the communication we shared with the dealers, how the dealers have embraced it, and 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 for an entry level telescope, I think it's going to be very very successful for us. That sounds cool, yeah. Because I'm always asked, you know, what type of telescope under five hundred dollars would be a good first telescope? And this, yeah, this sounds like something interesting. Yeah, it is good. Now, what do we have on the other side of the spectrum? 
Well, uh, we we started uh, uh, shipping the new 11-inch Ross uh, uh, telescope. If you don't know what that is, that that is a really imaging specific uh, sort of a Schmidt Cassegrain design, but the camera goes on the corrector plate instead of back where the eyepiece would go. What is what is Rasa? Rasa is um, you know you caught me where I wasn't thinking. Oh. Uh, uh, Roe Ackerman and I can't remember it all. <laughs> Probably Schmidt. Yeah, hang on, I'm cheating. <laughs> I'm uh, drawing a blank. Feel I feel horrible about this. Uh, it's a Roe Ackerman Schmidt astrograph. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, but we make an eight inch and we make an 11 inch and we just modified the 11 inch back at the beginning of the year with a new focuser system. Uh, we changed some inner working parts to make the, to sort of reduce the uh, image shift that you get with Schmidt Cassegrains. And so that is, uh, that's uh, started shipping, uh, late January. We're on back order again, but we will have some, probably in the, the next couple of weeks, but that's been very popular for the imager. Uh, there's lots of people already with uh, eight inch and uh, 11 inch ones, uh, you know, showing reviews and stuff on YouTube and all that kind of stuff. The, the uh, aperture is F2. So wow. you get a big 11 inch scope that is uh, extremely fast. So your exposure times are, you know, uh, under, under a minute, you know, way under a minute. And uh, you're getting lots of detail, a lot of capture, and capturing a lot of data when you use those scopes. Um, and that, that's probably the most um, advanced stuff we've had in a long time for uh, primarily for the imager. So it's doing really well. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's um, pretty heavy, mm-hmm. but it's, um, you know, lots of mounts on the marketplace. We have CG, uh, CGM, CGX, CGXL, all those support it fine. Uh, the eight inch will work on lots of things, you know, even a four or $500 mount and, and do imaging. Cause it's again, fast and you don't have to have super high accuracy tracking because your images are so short. Your exposure times are so short. Now do you sell it just as a uh, tube assembly? Sure. Yep. It's available. And, and, uh, we call it optical tube assembly and yep, it's available in that by itself. So what if you that? have a big enough mount and you want to get a, you know, a big fast telescope, you're in good shape. What are we looking at price point for those? Um, the eight inch is a couple of grand. Um, the OTA eight inch is, um, just a little under two grand at 1700. The 11 is about $3,500. Okay. That's comparable to what you would pay for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And, um, um, we have eights, um, pretty regularly They're they're in stock pretty heavy, but 11s because we did this change, we show, we sold the initial shipment real fast. Uh, and, uh, and more are on the way with the virus and stuff. We had factories shut down for about four or five weeks. Uh, uh when they got going again, we, uh, I heard about boats in the Long Beach Harbor, right. uh, being delayed for weeks at a time because yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the, just, the sit, they're just sitting out in the water right now. They're not uh, moving. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is, uh, you know, that's, that's hurt us a little bit. Generally we're in pretty good shape on inventory, but that, that scope is in pretty high demand. The back order is pretty high. So the 11 inch. Great. Great. You have any other products you want to talk, talk about? Oh, well, let's see. We, we just came out with a really cool new uh, mount for solar 
observing. It's called the Solar Quest. It's hmm. about 400 bucks. It holds 11 pounds of equipment. So a 70 and smaller would, would be, you know, its primary um, category of telescopes on it. But it uses, uh, it's called HelioPass. Uh, and it's a little software system that actually, you can set this telescope mount on the ground and literally turn it on. It levels itself and goes right to the sun. I, I mean, there's a little wow. camera. It's really the coolest thing. I, I've demoed it many, many times. I had it at Winter Star Party, and I probably demoed it 25 or 30 times a day. <laughs> really? Because people are like, what is this? And I'm like, I had a little 60-lot uh, solar scope on it. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, this is the solar quest. This is new. It's just, it's brand new. We haven't had it. We just started shipping them in January. It was, you know, Winter Star Party was just the next month. And so you just basically turn it on. You don't have to level it. You don't have to do anything to it. You don't have to, there's no hand controller. You don't have to put in the date and the time and your location or any of that stuff. You just turn it on. It levels itself and then searches the sky until it finds the sun. It literally takes a minute and a half. And then uh, I've had it in my driveway for five hours and it's tracked the sun perfectly for five straight hours. Wow. Yep, you don't have to do a thing. Now, if you put a higher-powered eyepiece on it and you want to scroll around on the sun and go from, you know, edge to the center and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, there is a little joystick on the mount that has up, down, left, and right like you would play a Nintendo game and allows you to move around the sun's surface if you've got high magnification. And, uh, and, And that's the only real controls on the mount power button and this little joystick is really all the only controls you have and really the only cro- controls you need because uh, it, it has this, uh, this camera system along with the software to find the sun for you automatically and stay on it. Uh, I was asked by a guy who was going to do a solar eclipse. Uh, if it, if the sun disappeared, would it stay on it? Hmm. And I said, you know, I don't know. So I took mine out in my driveway and I covered the little camera with an index card and it stayed on it for well over an hour before I decided not to do it anymore. Wow. So, yeah, it, it, I think the camera is there to just basically find the sun. And then the tracking uh, is already set up to do solar rate and keeps it there. Yeah. You know, when I've done solar observing, sometimes it's difficult to find the sun <laughs> through the telescope. Because yeah. your aperture is stopped down and you've got this yep. dark filter on it. Yep. Yeah, it pops up when it's there, but tell, it does. To try to find it, it's really kind of challenging. You're right. You know, because you mentioned you had a solar mount, and I'm like, well, what's the difference? But yeah. wow, that sounds yeah. pretty interesting. I like that. It is very interesting, yeah. And it's very portable. The, the mount itself uh, probably doesn't weigh six or seven pounds. Of course, you've got the tripod. The tripod, it doesn't, because we only support 11 pounds, it doesn't have to be huge. Mm-hmm. But it folds up real nice and compact. I bet it would fit in a small suitcase if you wanted to travel with it and you could do, you could do, uh, you know, uh, trips to solar eclipses all over the world and carry it with you, you know, that's, and what's the price on that? About 400 bucks. Wow. Yep. It's pretty huh. neat. That's very cool. I like yeah. that. I had not heard of that one. Yeah. It's only been on the market since uh, January, like I said, and, and, okay. uh, dealers are starting to stock it now. So you'll, you'll, if you go on the websites of these dealers, you'll see it's called solar quest. Okay. 
It's a Skywatcher product, okay? Oh, all right, all right. Yeah, there you go. I, I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> no, no, okay. I don't think I did. Yeah, it's a Skywatcher product. Okay. Yep. So things that Celestron are doing well right now, they're surviving? Yeah, it's it's pretty surprising how busy it stayed, even with the virus and everything going on. We have a lot of dealers that have had to close their doors because of you know the requirements in mm-hmm. their cities and states and stuff. And uh, most of the retail stores that I'm, you know, that I'm in contact with have actually had to close. They're, they're beginning to loosen that and some are actually beginning to open next week and, and uh, in the middle of May. So in the next few weeks, they're going to start opening their retail stores up, I think. Uh, but business is still brisk web. You know, if you've got a good web presence uh, as a dealer, then you're able to still make sales. Uh, a lot of stores even though they've been closed, the employees are allowed to go. They just, in the state of California, they don't let more than 10 in any building. Mm-hmm. So as long as there's less than 10 people in our warehouses, I mean, our whole building is basically closed uh, in California and, and most everybody except nine or 10 people are working our warehouse. We have two buildings. Yeah. So uh, everybody's home, but these warehouse guys in the, in, in uh, the building and they're uh, shipping orders like crazy. So it's still been pretty brisk. Yeah. That's, that's good. Yep. Now, w- with your experience with star parties and being on the sales side of, of, of telescopes and optics, what tips would you give somebody who just was starting out in astronomy? It, it depends on what that, you know, you have to ask a lot of questions, in my opinion. I, I've done a lot of training with uh, retail stores and employees and stuff. And, and that's a, a common question that people ask when they go into, you know, want to buy a telescope. But you have to ask them some questions about what they know and what, they're, what they think their interests are going to be. If they're interested in the night sky and they want to learn where the objects are, I really recommend a, a, at least a six or an eight inch Dobsonian for somebody like that. Uh, if they can tell me, uh, you know, they have a desire to do that. And then I think that's probably a really great place to start for a low amount of money. You can buy an eight inch job for, you know, four or 500 bucks easy, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not going to have any computerization and stuff like that. If the person says, you know, I don't know anything about it. I don't even know if I could ever begin to fathom learning about the night sky, but I really want to look at stuff. I've, I've seen Hubble images or whatever. I've seen my friend who's got images, you know, you, you, the last thing you want to do is ask them if they are into us, if they want to do photography because they don't understand how hard it is. Right. And if you ask them, they will automatically say, Oh yeah, I definitely want to take pictures. So don't ask them that question right off, but ask them if they're, you know, interested in looking at the objects first. And if they say, yeah, then I would recommend uh, a, a small to medium sized Schmidt Cassegrain on a computerized mount. You know, we sell the next star SC eight. It's our most popular telescope. It's around twelve hundred bucks to fourteen hundred bucks. Occasionally, you can find it on sale for around a thousand bucks, and some people don't want to spend that much money. Uh, but that, you know, that's really kind of where I think the best aperture for the objects are uh, is around six to eight inch. So that's kind of how I direct people in that regard. And then if you want to do imaging, I tell you not to think about it until you're comfortable with the night sky you're comfortable with the kind of objects you like to look at and want to photograph. And then you have to almost kind of start with something different. You know, uh, you can't really do deep sky imaging with a, uh, altazimuth oriented mount, which the little next star is you can do the moon and some planets and stuff like that, but you can't do a whole lot of deep sky stuff because it's just oriented wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And if you're wanting to do imaging, you got to have a, you know, a, a reasonably sturdy uh, mount and you don't want to spend less than, you know, five to $800 on a mount. You want to spend more than that if you can. And then you want to get into, in my opinion, a Schmidt Cassegrain for really uh, small objects, getting, you know, deep sky galaxies and double cl- uh, glus- clusters and stuff like that, nebulas. Uh, you want to get into a Schmidt Cassegrain for that. If you want to do, um, you know, bigger objects, Andromeda and stuff like that, you're going to want to get a, a, a medium sized refractor. So, like, you know, you just kind of have to ask the customer. Uh, the person that's interested, what their uh, intent is, and and find out from them uh, really what suits them. Because there's so many products on the market and so many variations and all the types of telescopes and all the types of mounts that if you don't ask enough questions, you're not going to really help that person. You're just going to end up, you know, confusing them and getting them to a point where they're not going to find it that interesting anymore. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Now, what about astronomy books? Do you have astronomy books that you've worn the binding out of and that you uh, always go back to? Yeah, I think the first book I got, I have it right on my shelf behind me. Uh, it's called Falling Stars. And uh, this is a book from uh, Mike Reynolds. And it's Meteors yeah. and Meteorites. Uh, yeah, I love Mike Reynolds. I'm, you know, uh, you so, yep. um, he, he, he and I became friends a long time ago when I started at Mead. Scott Roberts introduced me to him. We, be, you know, we became really good friends. And uh, I, I read that book a lot because I'm not a super meteorite guy, but I, mm-hmm. but I find them fascinating. And I've seen the deep impact crater in Arizona. And, you know, that kind of got me fired up about meteorites and meteors and stuff. Uh, and, and I also have one called the sky observers guide. Oh yeah. This was published. I don't even know in yeah. the, in the sixties. Yeah. This little golden book type thing. Yeah. yeah. 1959 was the first published date. And I've had this book. For, it's called a gold guide. Yeah. A golden guide. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. had this book since probably 1984 and 1985. I'm sure is when I got this and I've read that front to back, the covers all, you know, it's all rat tailed and rubbed off and, <laughs> Yeah, I think it fit in the back pocket too. It's a nice little nice little handbook to carry with you. Yeah. I've told a lot of people about that book and and I'm sure, you know, it's it's still in in production. You can still find it. So pretty cool. Good recommendations. Yep. Good recommendations. So what do you think about the future of amateur astronomy? Um it's it's weighted heavily now to uh at least in the serious amateur area imaging. Um I don't know if there's any statistics about it, but I, I attend so many star parties. I kind of get a feel for, you know, what's happening that the big Dobbs 24 inch, you know, 18 inch and up was a big uh, uh, wave in the last five or six or seven years. Uh, I still see some big ones at star parties. I've looked through a 36. I've looked through a 32. I've looked through a 30. I've seen some amazing things with those big apertures, but uh, I think, those are the hardcore guys like me that love visual and, mm-hmm. and aren't interested in, in imaging. And when you have a scope that big, it almost looks like a picture when you look in the eye, <laughs> you know, That's but I, I think the vast majority of the guys are doing imaging. Uh, I I've met, you know, some really amazing imagers over the last 15 or so years. And most of them tell me they don't own any eyepieces anymore. And, mm. uh, and that is to me a little disheartening, you know, 
Um, I, I love looking at objects that they started this way. They started looking at objects and then got to the point where they felt like they wanted to capture them with the image, you know, uh, with the sensor and uh, even before that with film. So um, I think that that's probably the, um, the vast majority, 70, 65 to 75% are now doing imaging at star parties. And they go on the first day, they, you don't talk to them because they're setting their rigs up, you know, mm -hmm. and it takes all day and most of the night to get them really where they're dialed in. And then you get to talk to them the rest of the week because they're just operating remotely and got their product, you know, all set up to do, you know, a couple of hundred pictures of a particular object and they're out socializing. So, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, yeah. I love people to talk, yeah. but, um, I think the, the, uh, advantage, the, the advantage of these new telescopes with the software we develop phones is going to help bring more people in. Uh, over the last five years, I've seen a younger crowd than I have in a long have time. You? I have, and they're in their thirties and forties and okay. some even younger. Um, I met a, a, a guy in Okie Tex. He had his nine-year-old son with him. And, and, um, we just started chatting. I was working for Explore Scientific at the time and we're just chatting. And I said, so do you have your own telescope? He said, yeah, dad gave me his 102. And I said, you have a 102? Whose is it? <laughs> he said, it's an Explore Scientific. I said, wow. And you're using it? He goes, yeah. So, so what are your favorite objects? He rattled off like 10 or 12 objects. I was like, you, this is awesome. You are the future of our hobby, man. And, uh, I actually got to do an interview with him, uh, while I was at that star party. I made him stand in a chair so we'd be at the same height and stuff. <laughs> it was so much fun. And he, his name is Brady. I loved him to death. I just thought that if, if we could get more kids like that, it would be really, really uh, exciting for our hobby for a long time. Um, but um, I, I, I think the younger guys are, you know, trying to figure out a way to find time that somehow was influenced by, you know, somebody like Brady uh, who was young and their parents got him involved or, mm -hmm you know, showed them through a telescope. And I think with the circumstances around the coronavirus, more parents are doing that with their kids because they need to find things to do. That's true. I think that's why our business is still doing okay is because guys are pulling out older telescopes they haven't used in a while. They're taking their kids out. They're updating their systems. They're buying accessories for what they already own or adding, you know, bigger scopes to what they've uh, been using for a long time. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, it's a very small industry. Uh, if you look at, True. you know, industries in general, it's a very niche uh, industry, but we're holding our own. So uh, yeah. I think as long as we still keep getting young kids involved and they transition into teenagers and, you know, early thirties, forties uh, and get involved in it, we're going to be fine. That's, that's good. Cause I keep hearing about the grain of astronomy and, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's I'd, like the ALPO this last week, we kicked off a youth section. So we have a whole group put together now just to promote astronomy to scout groups and things like that. So hopefully yeah, that'll, that, that'll help us along the way as well. Yeah, I got my uh, Constellation uh, merit badge when I was in the scouts. <laughs> I, I became an Eagle Scout and that was one of the oh, things I enjoyed the most. And that was, uh, I was probably you know, 12 or 13 years old when, when I had to identify, I think 20 constellations, if I remember right to get that badge. So, um, but that's, yeah, 
that that's a great place for kids to get uh, connected to it for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Greg, this has been great. Do you have anything else you want to share about yourself or your experiences with our audience? Uh, I think I've talked out, Tim. Thank you very much. But no, this is fun, and I really appreciate you inviting me and and asking me to do it. I'm happy to you know share with uh, the people that listen to your podcast, and hopefully they get something out of it. And and hopefully this uh, helps encourage more people to you know look at the sky. Great. And if people have questions, is there a way they can contact you? Yeah, um, my email is gbrag, the letter G brag, my last name at celestron.com. Fantastic. And I'll add that to the show notes so people can just go there and click on it and send you a note. Sure. That'd be great, man. All right, Greg. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our special guest, Greg Bragg from Celestron, for coming on today. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can now listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and the Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. If you have questions or comments or, uh, or show suggestions, just give me an email at cometman at cometman.net or contact us on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening and stay healthy, my friends. <laughs>